Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Get on over to Amazon. If you don't have a copy, you'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you for your continued interest and support. My guest for this episode is keyboardist, composer, producer, Monty Moyer, best known for being one of the original members of Prince's dazzling protege funk band, The Time. Moyer, along with Morris Day, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Jesse and Jellybean Johnson, were the killer lineup associated with two amazing albums of the early 1980s, the self-titled debut and What Time Is It? And then also 1990s reunion set Pandemonium and 2011's Condensate using the pseudonym, the original seven. Prince apparently blocked him from using the time name there for what was otherwise a surprisingly terrific album that I rate as one of the best funk releases of the past decade. Among the time's classic tracks were Get It Up, Cool, Wild and Loose, 777-9311, The Walk, Jigglos Get Lonely Too, and Without Moyer, Jungle Love and The Bird. While Prince wrote and performed much of the time's first two records, the band proved itself in performance and style as a super tight, incredibly entertaining and funky act in its own right. And over the years, the magnitude of the talent within its ranks made itself known as all the members went on to great success outside the group. I caught up with Moyer in his Minneapolis area home to discuss the time's glory years, how they splintered just as they were rising to superstardom, and subsequent reunions and ongoing challenges. Also, his experiences and perspective on Prince, his subsequent work with Jam and Lewis on big hits for the likes of Alexander O'Neill, Janet Jackson, Sherelle, and others, and the 25 years he spent since the 1990s back with Morris Day as the touring lineup for the time. Finally, also talked about what he's up to today. So the question is, what time is it? It's time to get MOIR'd, of course. I am very pleased to welcome to Truth and Rhythm keyboardist, composer, producer, Monty Moyer, best known as one of the original seven, the original seven members of Minneapolis's The Time, that is. In my opinion, one of the baddest, tightest, funkiest, and most entertaining groups ever. Monty, how are you? So glad to, ha glad to have you. I'm doing fabulous. Good to be here. So you're coming, I'm sure, from, from Minneapolis. Uh, Trying to thaw out, I'm guessing. Yeah, we're we're having a slow thaw here, but we're getting there. We yeah. dumped the other day, but it's melting quick, so we we can handle it pretty well. Yeah, you must have a strong back. <laughs> yeah, I've got snowblower. That's what that helps. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, ready to mix it up and talk some uh, Minneapolis music? Sure, whatever you want to talk about. Okay. All right, great. Well, I wanted to just, you know, get rolling kind of with a little bit of, uh, you know, your background from, from way back, you know, were you, were you born in Minneapolis or, or thereabouts and when and how did you first get into music? Born in South Minneapolis. Uh, first got into music. Oh, I did the usual thing. Most people do take a little piano lessons, a little guitar lessons over the years. And, um, <clears throat> one thing led to another and I started playing in local bands and, that, we started playing with Flight Time, which eventually became the time. Did um, did you have a musical family, or or was that kind of? Yeah, my mom played piano, always sang in the church choir. My my father played trumpet, trombone. He played over in Korea. He had a band over there when he was stationed. And uh, so yeah, I've had I've and I grew up around a lot of music, so definitely in the household. And what was it about music that really just captivated you to pursue among other possible pursuits? I don't know. That's the thing everybody gets into, you know, you just start hearing something you like and you feel it and you want to hear more of it. You want to figure out how it's done. You, want to, you know, I really got interested in, I think, songwriting at an early age. Uh, we used to have all these songbooks around the house, you know, all the popular songs of the day, popular songs of my Hope's Day, really. I, I was always curious who wrote it, who wrote the lyrics, and how does this work, and the chord changes, and kind of fascinated by that. So who were some of uh, the folks that you really kind of uh, um, 
gravitated towards early on in terms of influence and what you like to listen to and also like to try to emulate? Well, I'm really all over the map, really. I mean, I, I was a huge Neil Young fan growing up, Crosby, Stills, Nash Young. A lot of the acts that came out of the Woodstock movie or the Woodstock era, Santana, um, like uh, Burt Backrack, I'm a big fan of. Uh, you know, there's, there's like guys who can write crap, these wonderful pop songs. And there's, uh, I mean, I grew up listening to some country music, and then that was going on in the household. Every Saturday night, the Grand Old Opry. Um, I didn't gravitate to it too much, but I was exposed to a lot of different types of music and, and uh, got into some jazz as I was getting out of high school. I really got into Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and things like that, and studied some classical music for a while. Uh, and sonatas and stuff. I didn't get too far with it, but I, I and then I studied with a, a Brazilian jazz classical player, James Manfredo Fest, for about a year and a half. And he was incredible. I learned a ton of things from him. Now, around the same time, we were playing in flight time, playing funk music out in the bars, and so I've got a little of everything, I guess. It seems like, uh, you know, when you talk to the people that came out of Minneapolis, there's so many diverse influences. Um, and I think that that is a credit to the great music that came out of there because it's brought so many different influences together and distilled it out into something that was new out of all that. Um, yeah, really, it really was diverse because I mean, as this story is told many times, there really wasn't black radio here except for PMOJ, which is a little station up on the north side and it's got bigger, but Back then, you could only get it, I think, certain hours of the day, you know, about three blocks away from the place, you know. So I grew up in the south side of Minneapolis. I, I wasn't exactly exposed to a lot of funk growing up, other than what I heard on pop radio and stuff, you know, the Earth, Wind, and Fires, and you know, a bit of James Brown, you know, a bit of, bit of this stuff. But I didn't really get into hardcore funk stuff until I was about out of high school. I, I just didn't know. People are like, have you heard this? I'm like, no. Was, you know, and it's, it's, that was a whole other world there. Is it true what they say about that area? You know, it's so cold that, you know, it helps because it keeps you inside woodshedding and coming up with all this music and really perfecting your craft. I think there's something to that. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, the crime rate goes down in the winter. There's not much going on here. I mean, although people are really active in Minnesota, I grew up playing hockey. So, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my youth outdoors. And, and there's always something to do, but it doesn't seem to stop anybody up here. But yeah, I think there is something to the fact that you get a cold winter and it's easier to, there's less distractions sometimes. It's easier to sit down and hunker down and stick with your purpose, I think. So I know you got a, a phone call through some friends or something like that related to flight time and, and filled in, and then it led to something. Could you sort of just recap how that went down? Yeah, there's a couple of buddies of mine, David Island and Tom Lund, who played in Flight Time, who I went to the same high school with in, in South Minneapolis. And uh, most of Flight Time was being in them, Terry, they were up on, on they went to North High School. And I remember they played, I, mean, I knew of them, they played at our homecoming, actually, the year before. Well, maybe it was our senior year, I think perhaps. But I knew about the band, but I didn't know a whole lot about, about them other than what my buddies had played. And it was the night that I was in college, and it was the night before I had a final for some business class. And my buddy Tom Lund kept asking, he called me and said, you know, half the band didn't show up. There's only, yeah, I think it was Terry and Bean and, and Monk, who's a sax player, were there with, maybe it was Cynthia Johnson was there. She was a, um, <clears throat> or maybe it was just the three. I don't know. They were, for whatever reason, they were missing a whole lot of people. And Terry had called Tom to come down, and I, I kept saying to Tom, "I, I got a final. I, can't, I haven't really studied for this thing too much." So anyway, he called me two, three times. I'm like, "All right, screw it, let's go." And so I went down, sat in with him, and Terry uh, asked me that night to be in the band, and, and just started going from there. So. Well, it happened that quick. Just you played once, and it's like, hey, come join us. Yeah, pretty much. 
I think I got a D on my business plan. So <laughs> I usually did pretty well, but I didn't do so well on that. That's like a little footnote. <laughs> yeah, I did recover though. Yeah, so we started playing in flight time from there, and I played for about a year and a half. When I first started, Cynthia Johnson was the lead singer, and then Sue Ann Carwell was there for a while. And then we ended up with Alexander O'Neill at the end, and and uh, right, you know, right around then, he's a time prince who's coming around, rounding up some guys for the time. What what struck you about the guys in flight time initially? I mean, you know, was there a instant chemistry did you just kind of like these guys or do you, you was it more the music side was it also you know a camaraderie thing i think all of the above i i, I like them it was, it was a good camaraderie and they were really serious about what they were doing you know some some of, and and they had uh which area in particular had had his sights set pretty high and some of the local bands were, were i think were more uh complacent just to say oh let's get some work let's work four or five nights a week and you, know, you, you, you can never really make it from you know Terry was always yeah you can and partially because fly time couldn't get a lot of work either we, there were i remember there was a uh, we, when i was there we played some college gigs we played a small club in south minneapolis called the nakarima which was strictly mostly a black club and then we played the riverview supper club which is mainly a black owned club and, and we didn't have we couldn't get into the same gigs that a lot of the other bands were and i remember one club owner harry relaying to me that, that he said you know i really like your band but you got i hate to say but you got too many black guys in your band and i just don't want to draw that crowd in so many words so we were limited in in where we could play sometimes and Perhaps I can't speak for him, but I think that might have been part of the impetus to shoot a little higher and say, "Let's get out of here and see if we can make a go of this thing." Hmm. What was the set list kind of like when you first started getting with them? Uh, mostly just the funk of the day. Um, a little bit later, we st we did like a. Uh, at the Riverview Supper Club, we played a, uh, you know, jazz set where we did some standards and quieter dinner type music because that's what they wanted for the first set. And then we would we would do things like, oh, uh, second time around, I shall know, um, one in a million, third uh, one, uh, George Benson stuff, just just all the stuff that was popular back back then. So I heard Terry was very into P-Funk uh, at one point. So I wasn't sure, you know, how mainstream you guys were if you went off on the deep end of the funk back then. Terry was way into P-Funk. Uh, yeah, we did. I don't remember doing much of that, but it was more more of the stuff, that we, you know, more of the radio stuff, I guess. You would say the pop stuff, even some pop stuff back then, Michael McDonald, stuff like that. The Rebellers, we're on a few of those, but. So were you a, a, a quick study? I mean, did you pick up stuff by ear or did, you know, how much, how much work did it take you to really get up to speed? Uh, really just listening to stuff, studying stuff. I, I don't know. I, I, we always kind of picked up stuff by ear, like, like the old school guys, you know, they didn't have YouTubes and all that. So we, we would put the record on, on the turntable at your mom's house and, you know, Put it down and try to go what was that chord and you had to pick up the needle and kind of try to get it in about the same place you might do that however many times you need to to get the right chord or the right change or the right lyrics or you know, that was kind of how we learned most of us and just and just playing together kind of just working it out trying to figure it out to play it as close as you could possibly play it for the record because we took great pride in that i mean you know all these guys you know, a guitar player or a keyboard player or whatever you, you know you wanted to play like your idols and so that was the way you did it so at that point did you start to feel uh more of an affinity for funk oh yeah i mean it was it was i i just like anything that that i like and it, it doesn't really matter what it is but i i like a lot of that and it, it, 
I got into it pretty quickly and I got it I got into it late as I said earlier but once I got into it I was always in and hardcore about it for quite a while you know it just gets in your blood like anything else in music and you just start living it and breathing it and doing the best you can with it but it's rhythmically different from some other genres I mean it's a it's a music that I mean you really have to feel it you know yeah you do and I, I, I you do and, and I, I don't know I guess I can't explain it I guess you just start feeling it and playing it and hope you can pull it off and I guess that's what we're all doing so um, yeah okay so Monty when um, did you sort of um, connect with Prince basically let's tell that part of the story um, when I first got into flight time they were recording a demo with Cynthia and they did three songs and um, I was kind of on the tail end of that and I just came in and played some keyboards so, but that's when I first learned oh you know Prince wants to do something what do you mean and he said well he always he always told us uh, when he got a deal and he got going he's gonna come back to us and help us out oh okay that's interesting you know I don't think um, I don't know how much Time had gone, maybe years had gone by. It was, yeah, year, year and a half. <clears throat> and the first time I met Prince, we, we it was kind of fun, though. to me, it was kind of fun. But we were the house band at the Riverview Supper Club in North Minneapolis. And, then, and somebody said, Oh, Prince is coming down tonight. And I said, Oh, cool. Yeah, and he comes down and pretty quiet, like everybody has always said, at least initially. And he said, let's, let's, we wanted to sit in. So we go to sit in, and uh, I think it was me and Dean Terry Prince, as far as I remember. And he tells me what to play on the, on the let's just do this on the one, and shows me the voicing, and da da da. And we start playing head of all things. And so that was my first encounter with Prince, my first experience with Prince. And it was, it was, uh, I mean, this guy was impressive, obviously. I mean, you know, everybody else had been around some great players at that point. I mean, some really great players. And, but there was something about his presence when he got up on stage and started going was, you know, it goes from here to here. The whole stage just elevates, it feels like. I, mean, I even felt it back then that, you know, it's just a simple, Things such as sitting in, but uh, I was like, okay, this this cat's this is the real deal here. He's dead serious about what he's doing. And, you know, he had a cut, you know, I guess it was right before Dirty Mike, so he was kind of running through that, some of that stuff. But, yeah, that was my first principal. You know, I saw, I saw uh, Prince play in Santa Monica Civic. Back, back in, in um, 81. One. Um, um, actually, can you turn your, maybe turn your speaker style back, getting a little feedback? Your mind out? Yeah. Okay. That's better. Yeah. So um, I was saying I saw him at the Civic in Santa Monica back in like 81. And uh, the, he, when he did head, he did a thing where he had uh, the synthesizer on the one side and the guitar still on him. It was playing both at the same time. And I was just like, wow. Oh, he's amazing. Just every, everything that you could possibly, every adjective you could use was pretty accurate. I, think. I mean, I've never seen anybody like him that could cover, I mean, that's because everybody knows this, but I mean, who can cover the ground that he covers, you know, from, from the musicality, the songwriting, the arrangement, the singing, the guitar playing, the killer keyboard player. He was he was a killer drummer. Because his business savvy, his just his drive was through the roof. I mean, we had never seen anything like that. Guy was nonstop and he was he had a very singular purpose and he, that's where he was going. Nothing was gonna get in his way. And he did that. <laughs> Just a, it's a rare feat to see somebody to be that focused and that driven to be a rock star. 
Yeah. At that point, he had had um, a, a pop hit already with I Want to Be Your Lover before Dirty Mind came out. So I'm imagining he was already um, pretty big around Minneapolis. Or was it kind of thing where he was sort of bigger outside in the big cities and locally he was he was known, but maybe not a superstar yet? Yeah, because there was no radio here. There was no black radio here. So every, everybody maybe heard of him, but nobody experienced, I mean, outside of the North Side community, which is primarily the black community at that time. And uh, when we first started the time playing, it's like, I knew he was a big deal, but I had no idea how big of a deal he was until we started going to Detroit, Montgomery, Alabama, and New York, and some of these other cities where it was at. This is way beyond what they're probably in Minnesota, but I think, for, you know, maybe many reasons, but it probably wasn't until after, honestly, until 1999, when, you know, Delirious and all that kind of, where he started getting some pop, uh, Little Red Corvette, when he started getting some real pop play on radio, which showed up in Minnesota, that he really started to get some of his due in Minnesota. But before that, it was, I don't think people knew as well as they should have. Yeah, that's like right around the time they finally started putting him on MTV also. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, he got there though. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you played on head and, and you met him and, and you got sort of into that camp. How did it progress from there? Um, well, as everybody knows the story, it's it's uh, Morris had written Party Up and, and Prince liked it and wanted to use it. And he said, hey, either I'll give you some money or I'll help start a band. And Morris said, uh, yeah, let's do a band. And so they started recording. And, uh, um, you know, they'd done most of the first record by the time they, I mean, this is any, anybody doesn't know it, but most of the record was done. And then they started gathering people to be in the band basically you know. and, and so morris called me one day and just said you want to you want to do this and sure of course and uh, I think by that point it was me and terry and um me terry morris and alex was going to be the original singer alexander o'neill and uh we had a meeting at Perkins of all places with me, Terry, Alex. Um, I don't know if Jan was there or not. He maybe he was there. He probably was there. Um, and Prince and about how this is going to work. And by the end of the meeting, it, it was Prince had decided that he didn't want to use Alex and that he was going to use that Morris would be the lead singer. And Morris was pretty hesitant at first. And, and he said, and Prince just said, well, we're going to make it work. And, and we did. Because Morris considers himself mostly a drummer. Mm -hmm. And he's a crazy good drummer, by the way. I think mean, people are starting to realize that now, but he's an amazing drummer. And he played on a lot of the early Prince stuff, really. You know, all the early time stuff and all the Prince stuff. Not all the Prince stuff, but some of the, some of the tracks, which he's uncredited. So how how did you and the and the other guys in the in the band take the um, uh, you know the the change with Alex being out of the picture? Was everyone cool with that? Um, I yeah, I guess so. I mean, we we didn't really know what we were getting into at that point. I mean, we, we knew the Prince wanted to put a band together and wanted to put a record out, and he wanted us to open for him and. You know, we were just kind of along for the ride in a way. I mean, it wasn't really our decision to make. And I mean, it was, and, but at, as it, so I think we were just kind of going along. I mean, it wasn't our project in such, you know, I mean, we didn't, he was, he was helping us and this is what he saw as the vision. And um, I mean, I was sad a little bit because Alex is such an amazing singer. And I'm, I'm really glad that he got his due and he got his own deal. and. He got to do probably worked out best for everybody, frankly, because you know, I think the time would have been a totally different band with Alex. It would have been better, worse, just different, you know. Um, 
I think everybody probably ended up right where they should have at the end of the day. So um, I'd heard, I don't know if it was a personality thing or a money thing. I think I heard a money thing, but yeah, they definitely would have been a very different band. <laughs> yeah, we would have been a different band for sure. So this is the, uh, of course, that first record. And um, man, when I first heard this, Monty, I was just blown away. I mean, it's there's only six six songs on here, but amazing. I mean, and, you know, Get It Up, of course, was the lead one. Uh, cool with uh, the cool uh, cymbal dance and, and the stick. Three incredible epic jams and then some good slow stuff too. Um, what was your impression when you first heard what was what was going on here? Um, well, I thought it was great. I mean, what he's doing is great. I mean, the, the work on that record was phenomenal. But, um, we, uh, well, like I said, we didn't know what to expect about it. None of us did. We were just like, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, we're young kids. Let's go. We, you know, this is a way out to get out of playing these local bars and stuff. And, you know, Prince was very singular in his purpose. And he, we followed him, you know, because we believed in what he was doing. And was rightly so. I was floored when I first heard that, you know, it wasn't, you know, the time musicians on that record because I had seen and heard the time and you guys were so great. And um, it was just amazing to me that the musicality could be so impressive on that record and not be the time guys. And yet the time guys were so incredible also. Well, that, that was our point of redemption for us. We always felt that out on live. Uh, that was the way we could, we could do what we do or we could um, do what we do, I guess. You know, we only had the first tour, I think we played 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes opening for them. But, you know, we rehearsed for months and months, about six days a week, five, six days a week, eight, 10 hours a day. Do a 30-minute show. I mean, I mean, we were ready to go by the time it was all. Every, every nook and cranny had been covered and every part had been dissected. And, you know, Prince worked with us all the way and kicked their butt the whole way and made made us the best we could, made us better than we thought we could do. What was, what was he like when he rehearsed you guys? I mean, what did he really focus on a lot? Um, everything. I mean, he focused, he, he allowed us to get to where we were in, uh, I don't know, a fraction of the time that he said it took him. He said it took him a number of years to figure out what to do, how to look, how to, how to pace a show uh, as far as a set list goes, how to segue songs, how to do lighting, how to, uh, you name it. And he had already had a number of years under his belt how to do this. And he said, I'm going to show you guys how to do this so you don't have to go through what I went through. It was incredible. You know, when you say okay. that, it reminds me that, you know, one of the amazing things to me about him was just the way I thought that with each record for a long period of time, his his progress, if you will, or his ascension was exponential. You know, he would take it to such a new place and such a new level with each successive record. And I think that also you saw that in the way he did his shows and things like that. So by the time you connected with him, he had already come so far from like that first record in just a few short years. Oh yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it was, it was, to watch this guy work was, I mean, you know, you know, people throw around genius, but I mean, he, he was just one of these guys who just, he was like a sponge. He could soak up everything. He could learn information really fast and apply it. And he wasn't a guy who sat around and talked about stuff. He just did stuff. And that was the big difference between him and most other people. I think he, he just said, we're doing this. Well, when are we going to do it? Uh, now? <laughs> okay. You know, and then we're out of the next thing and out of the next thing. And, and it was phenomenal. He was a once in a generation, two generations kind of guy. And just, I mean, everybody knows this. I mean, but it's, it's watching him firsthand. It's just, amazing he didn't even learn about things and what you know the musicality and the business and everything else and 
learning to work harder than we maybe thought we needed to work. You know, I, we just kept pushing and pushing no matter what. And it's, it caused tensions, many tensions, a lot of tension sometimes. But at the end of the day, we were all better for it as musicians. So it worked. Did you ever think early on what I get myself into? <laughs> I think we all did at some point, <laughs> but at the same time, there there was it was pretty exciting, pretty exciting time. Yeah. So, who came up with uh, most of the shtick? You know, the um, you know Morris's really cool persona. I mean, did that mostly come from Prince? And how much was that sort of like the real Morris Day? Oh, there's a lot of the real Morris in there, you know, and it, but it's. It's interesting because it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't a concept. It wasn't a, here's what we're going to do. It, it just sort of, this whole band just kind of sort of organically grew out of a vision. And, and we stepped into it, but we also took it to another place, I think. And Morris is hilarious. Prince is hilarious. Some of the guys in the band are hilarious. And things would just start getting bantered about, and one thing led to another, and this, this the whole shift started. It's, it was very natural, particularly between Morris and Prince, to to riff on this whole this whole cool business and the whole thing. But I think I think it worked so well because it, there was always a, it was serious, but yet there was a tongue in cheekness. It as well, you know. I think if somebody was dead serious, it would have been, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, but people found it entertaining, and it's and it worked. You know, at the time, they're very different, but at the time, I remember thinking, you know what, this Morris persona and this character, and this whole thing they're doing is the coolest thing in RB since Bootsy, you know, that Bootsy was this really charismatic front guy that was so cool but he'd take himself seriously and morris day too was just so cool and didn't take himself seriously and had that charisma on stage and the band too was you know the rubber band bootsy's band was so tight and the time also so tight and to me it just seemed like that was like the new version of this but different and i think you know of course if the time hadn't splintered would have been so huge i think throughout the whole 80s yeah, yeah, it's a shame it did fall apart. But I, you know, there was a lot of internal problems and a lot of things going on, which I guess didn't allow it to happen on many fronts. But um, yeah, I just like the way it, it all came together because you, know, you didn't, you know, Morris was Morris was hesitant to go up front at first because he he sang stuff in the local band, some you know, but he he didn't see him as a lead himself as a lead singer and so we're all kind of going okay how's this going to work you know because he could sing fine but how is this all going to work we didn't know and it just it all just evolved and it was, i i think that's what helped its credibility to it because it wasn't a concept it wasn't a throwing a boy band together it wasn't a you know nothing against you know that all that whole scene too but i mean this thing just happened out of nowhere it just became what it was what about like the the dance steps and things like that you know who kind of choreographed and organized that uh i didn't <laughs> <laughs> but most everybody else had ideas and jerome in particular was really good with, with uh he wasn't on board fully right away but as he got going he was more involved with that as um but a lot of it was was the whole concept was to keep to keep something entertaining going on the stage at all times. So if Morris was over here with Terry playing, then somebody's over here doing something else. So so that people are always looking at something. Your eyes always getting drawn to something in some form or another. And so there was a lot of emphasis put on that to entertain. Um, but it was really organic. I mean, somebody would say, "Okay, how where do you, how are we going to step on this part?" And 
somebody or another would just go, well, how about we do this? Or, let's do this. And there'd be some laughing and we'd do whatever. And then, all right, let's do that. And then we'd start doing it. And it would, a lot of it was just taking old, old dances, which I never knew about because I'm not of that ilk, but, and really just repurposing them into some, some, something. They're usually simple things because we, we wanted to try to do things where the whole stage could move at the same time, you know, especially with me and Jan on keyboards, to, uh, so that, you know, we're playing two parts, we're singing, and we're doing steps. So, you know, we were limited somewhat in, in as far as how much we could do uh, movement-wise. Um, and we wanted, at least in certain things, everybody to be able to do, like the walk, what we're doing with the walk, or stuff like that, where it's, um, we just made it work so that the whole stage would move if we could. Well, speaking of the walk, here's that second record. Um, arguably better, probably, I think a lot of people probably would say this is the pinnacle of the Times records, but uh, had Wild and Loose, 777-9311, the Walk, Jiggles Get Lonely 2, another great, great record. Only six songs again. So when you think about it, the original time before they splintered, there's only like 12 songs. But what an impact. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. I know the first tour we played all six. I think we played the entire record because we only had 30 minutes. We had to fill up 30 minutes with something, you know. So we basically played the whole record as far as I remember. But yeah, it was amazing. Six, 12 songs, and all this, all this came out of that. So, how'd you guys create this? So, you actually got to go and do some studio on this one, right? Uh, a couple of guys did. It was a little more involved, but I think that was part of the demise too. You know, like people wanted to be more involved in this point because you know everybody was writing songs, everybody was was musical and wanting to be more involved. And, and so some of the problem is, I think. People wanted to be more involved, and it wasn't happening at the rate we wanted it to. But. There's a, there he is there. Looking sharp. Very sharp. Well, that's a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, uh, did you, there was also this one that came out around that time, and, um, I know it says that the time did the music on it. Um, how, how was that one produced? Vanity Six. You know, it said it, he gave us credit for the production, but you know, he basically did that. that record. And I think there was some one of the songs that was written by Terry, and Jesse might have had a part of a song, but it was, it was basically fixed. For some reason, he gave us credit for the whole thing. We, we, we went on tour. Uh, when we went on tour, we were the opening band for, or we were the band behind the curtain for Vanity Six. So. I was fortunate enough to be at the Long Beach Arena. I don't know if you remember individual shows, but I was at the Long Beach Arena. They had the Vanity Six opening, and then the Time and Prince. So it was a 1999 tour, and um, I remember just man, you guys blew it away. And I think that was around the time when I heard that there were some tensions because. You guys were upstaging the headliner a little bit and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there was there was some cities that he, well, he wouldn't let us usually play uh, L.A. or New York because for that reason, because we were kind of getting in his butt a little bit. But, you know, some of the reviews were coming back favoring us over him some nights, and that didn't go over too well. But, you know, that that was our only redemption was playing live for thirty minutes. That was that was the only way we could. But we do it, you know. So we took a lot of pride in, in that because we, we were handcuffed in other ways, you know, with, with some of our participation. But I remember the Long Beach show, and then what I remember about it is um, we started playing, and the, I don't know what number of cool was in the set, but we started playing cool. And I looked behind me, and Stevie Wonder was behind me, and he was literally like three feet behind me. You know, he's, he's doing the Stevie thing, and I just thought, oh, man, don't mess this up. I'm just monitoring. <laughs> I'm right by his ear. Don't, you know. <laughs> don't mess up. No I'm, pressure. Like, <laughs> that, you know, I, that's an idol. He's an idol of mine. 
that point, I never met him. And, you know, I mean, it's just a surprising thrill to have him sitting three feet from you. That, that was the, the whole other world we were beginning to be introduced to. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Did you actually get to meet him afterwards? That show I didn't, but I've met him since then. Yeah. Wow. So it was kind of a Frankenstein's monster in a way that Prince created, right? Because you guys were upstaging him a little bit. Yeah, people would say that to him. They said, yeah, he created a monster. <laughs> and he liked it and he hated it. You know, it was his baby, but so he loved it. He loved that we were doing so well, but he hated it because we were pushing up against him. But I think it really helped the competitiveness of both fans because it's it drove him, I think, to do more. It drove us to push to do more as well. It was pretty competitive. It was we had fun with it, that's for sure. And where did that phone ever come from? The seven, 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 uh, I was told it was Des Dickerson's number. Oh. And, and this was before area codes, I believe. And within a short period of time, he had to change his number, of course. <laughs> At some ridiculous rate of speed, so he had to change his number. Do you, do you have a favorite uh, cut off those first two records that you just enjoyed more playing or performing than the others? Um, I think seven seven eight seven is a pretty amazing track. I've always liked Gigolos. And, uh, uh, cool, it's always been fun. Give it up. How how was it determined in the arrangements? You know what Jimmy Jam would do and what you would do, and, and those kind of parts. We kind of were pretty steady with it. Jam would usually do the synth bass, right, just about always. And, and and we had a pretty simple setup. Was, we each had an OBA, you know, some variation of an OBA, overhide keyboard. Um, and he had an ARP Omni, which is a more of a string keyboard. And I had a piano and, and some moves maybe. Uh, uh, that was the bigger move, I forget. Something to play the pads and then uh, an Oppenheim. So he, Jan would usually play the bass lines and the string parts, and I'd play the piano stuff and the horn hits and the whatever else was well, pads and stuff. But we doubled up on as many things as we could because we were, you know, Prince was very meticulous about it. You know, you can't not have your hand doing something. Yet, even if there wasn't something playing, you needed to double up, triple up find an elbow or something to play another note somewhere to make it bigger. And this is before, you know, the whole MIDI thing started and all that. It was in the beginning stages of that. So what, whatever we played on one keyboard, was that was it. So mm -hmm. we, we, we filled it up pretty well. That was, that was all. Yeah. So things uh, splintered, you had friction. Uh, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, famously, um, were let go after the uh, <coughs> getting snowed in in Atlanta, I believe, which is very uncommon. Yes. And uh, uh, for SOS band uh, work they were doing, but but you guys, uh, they finished the tour though, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was in February, maybe. I'm not sure of the dates, but then the Atlanta show, and then they were done by April or somewhere else. But they knew they were on the outs already, so that must have been kind of weird. No, they didn't know they were on the outs. Oh. Nobody knew okay. anything. We just did the show and we played the show in San Antonio and uh, Lisa was off to the side and Prince was off to the side playing bass and we just, you know, did what we could. And that, you know, he was clear Prince was clearly not happy, but not much was said. He probably knew it was maybe the end of the world, but he didn't none of us knew that that was gonna happen. So what was your reaction when that came down? I thought, you know, I thought, well, that's over. I'm done. Nice ride. <laughs> nice ride, right? Nice ride. Yeah. I mean, it, I it was disheartening because, um, you know, we were all good friends at that point, and and we did see this thing really going further and further, and 
And I thought to get, to get rid of those two guys was you know, just not not a good move as far as the band went. And, but then again, there was so much tension on by the end of the second tour, the internal tensions and, and tensions with Prince, and it was just not fun in a way by the end of the second tour. So I, I you know. I, month or so after they got fired, I just I decided to leave. And then I think I went to it was right before Purple Rain started. I think I went to one of the Purple Rain rehearsals and I just went, oh, I'm done. Just for many reasons I just I'm good and done. Your your heart wasn't in it at that point, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, it was just too it was just too much of what I didn't want or what anybody didn't want, you know. Conflict mm -hmm. and People leaving, and you know, our, this whole unit that we took so much pride in was being torn apart, and you know, that was kind of it for me. Were there kind of clicks in the band at that point? You know, is that why certain guys stayed and, and some guys didn't? Not really. I mean, we were at that point, we were all pretty solid together. It was more, I think, problems with, with you know, Prince, I guess, at that point. He was, he was very much a controlling person particularly then um and you know just things happen just like many other bands just things they're falling apart for many reasons you know we wanted more involvement and we wanted more everything you know it just it was hard to come by and people wanted to be more creative we wanted to do more things and, and some of that just wasn't happening at the pace that we wanted it to be. um yeah, it's too bad because there was a lot of talented folks there. And, you know, if we could have found a way to make that work, we could have been together for a long time. Definitely. And, you know, I was pretty shattered when I heard that because uh, I was such a fan. But then, you know, still when, when this came out and, um, you know, half the band was still there, I was kind of surprised that it was as, you know, competent as it was considering what was going on behind the scenes you know i mean there's you know some some big hits on there oh yeah were, were, were you were you surprised that they had pulled off this record like they did not necessarily because i you know like i said prince was at the helm and with him at the helm and particularly in those days it, i just felt like anything you touched was gonna, was gonna work mm. it was gonna work big and everything I don't know how many years it didn't seem like no matter what band he got involved with or what song he sent to person, you know, Gina Easton, you name it, whatever he got involved with became a hit. So I, that really didn't surprise me. What about the explosion phenomenon that Purple Rain became? I mean, you were on the inside there for a while. I mean, did, knowing how talented he was even, did you think it would get to that kind of level? I don't think anybody did. You know, I mean, no reflection on his talent, of course. It just to have a movie go that big, period, is, is a rough go. You need a big studio. Um, I don't think he. I don't think anybody foresaw that. I don't think Warner Brothers foresaw that. I'm not sure he foresaw that. In in, in his words, from what I heard, he he was really just trying. Or I guess he said this later on the free bridge, but he said these movies he was was doing for just a vehicle to promote the music. He wasn't trying to make Bond with the world. He was, I don't know if he likened it to the old Elvis movies, but, he, but it, was, it was more in that vein of, of trying to do good work to try to make a good movie. But it was all about forwarding the music. I understand. At that point, though, did you still appreciate the fact that he was shining this light on Minneapolis because that movie was so Minneapolis focused, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was incredible. It did great things for the city. First mm -hmm. Avenue, the club, and phenomenal. Yeah. Really so, Monty, for the uninitiated, how would you describe the Minneapolis sound that came out of that era? What, what, what distinguishes it? I would put this at the helm of it. You know, if you're talking about the R&B sound that became what they call the Minneapolis sound, I think what 
Yeah, I, I see. Uh, in one respect, boil it down to production, where you had, you know, Lynn drum machine, you had Oberheim keyboards, and you had these keyboards playing horn parts, which a horn player might normally play, or a facsimile of that. And rock guitar. I mean, I don't know how you explain it, but it's it's uh, it was raw. It was, it was you know you you'd watch the meters on the songs and the, the levels in the studio would just be pegged. The Prince liked that because it it he felt it sounded more frantic. You know, but from an engineer standpoint, it was wrong. You know, you're not supposed to have things distorted or have things in red. This is the days of analog recording, so. But it saturated the sound so much that it became, I don't know, put on a different character. But, but he loved it because it, he felt it sounded frantic. He liked that, the energy that he got out of it. But to me, the, the distinguishing thing was really, especially just the use of the, the keyboards for the horns. Um, it was done so creatively, it just seemed amazing that no one had done it like that before, you know? But, yeah, uh, in a way, it's such a simple idea. If you think about it, and he, I remember we were rehearsing one day, and, and this is early on, and he said, he came over to me and said, well, here's what we're doing. We're doing, we're going to do this horn part like this. And he said, you know, we don't really have real horns, so we're going to do it here. And he tweaks the knob to get it to how, you know, the horns were, we don't have real horns, so here's how we're going to do it. Okay. 